we return to our international law expert, Alfred Desaius, as he shares insights about the international illegality of U.S. sanctions. Now, with regard to the sanctions that were imposed against Russia after the reincorporation of Crimea into uh, Russia, of course, these sanctions are illegal. The only sanctions that are legal in the international system are sanctions imposed by the Security Council Mm -hmm. under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, and that is not the case here. But those who think Mm -hmm. that by breaching international law, you change it. Well, I have news. You do not. Mm -hmm. A breach of law does not give rise to a new law. It just manifests the inadequacy of international law that does not have an effective enforcement mechanism because you would have been able to, shall we say, condemn the sanctions in the International Court of Justice if the question were sent to the International Court of Justice for adjudication. But we are living in a very politicized world in which not only do we have fake news, we have fake history because fake news eventually becomes fake history. (laughs) And then we have (laughs) what I call fake law. Politicians, Anthony Blinken, Mike Pompeo, our presidents, they make international law as they go along. They just simply claim that this is what international law says. Well, it isn't. I wanted to ask you or just give you one more thing to speak to, but also wanted to make time to share some of your your written work that provides the uh, evidentiary nature of your arguments here that you've made very eloquently here today. It seems like this term U.S. exceptionalism, if there's anything that threatens our national security as a nation, nobody second guesses that we have the right to step forward and make whatever arrangements we feel are necessary. But in the Russian situation, particularly with Crimea, which by the way, is their only naval base It's incredibly integral to their national security, uh, more so than any other type of example that I can think of. Crimea is home of Sevastopol, which is Russia's only warm water port. Yet none of this is presented in the narratives that you've been so critical of, because it's just an unfair avoidance of certain inconvenient facts. But can you wrap up the significance of this U.S. exceptionalism and what it poses to the world around us. And also, I wanted to ask you to share, you have a recent book that talks about uh, these narratives and also can provide information in some other recent writings that you have and how people can access on Twitter some of your commentary so that they can get a more balanced informational overview before deciding for themselves what to think. Well, American exceptionalism is, of course, contrary to international law and is contrary to the UN Charter. It is, shall we say, the most eloquent rejection of international law that you can think of. And with regard to matters of self-determination, why don't we apply it in the American context What do you think the Declaration of Independence of the 13 colonies on the 4th of July, 1776 was? 
I mean, that was uh, obviously contrary to British law and to the rule of law that obtained in the uh, 18th century. Outstanding. Uh, and uh, if we claim that we can declare ourselves independent, how are we going to deny another people this right? U.S. Now, exceptionalism. Very good. My 2014 report to the General Assembly, document A-69-272, is devoted entirely to the theory and practice of self-determination. And in my book, Building a Just World Order, published by Clarity Press in Atlanta, Georgia, September 2021, so half a year ago, there is a chapter, chapter five, devoted entirely to self-determination, which also goes into the self-determination of Crimea and of the Donbas and so on. So I think your listeners would uh, benefit from reading both the book and the report to the General Assembly. And next July or August, also in Clarity Press, my new book, Countering Mainstream Narratives, will be published. The subtitle of the book is fake news, fake law, fake freedom. And I would say to the listeners, don't believe what you read in the New York Times or what you hear in CNN or in Fox. Uh, you have no choice but to go on the internet and to get the facts yourself to the extent, of course, that the algorithms of Google and of Bing and of the other search engines do not exclude them. And they do more and more. Huh? But in any event, you can still inform yourself. There are plenty of professors of international law and professors of international relations, political science, who thoroughly agree with me. I could mention immediately Richard Falk in California. I can mention John Mersheimer in Chicago, Stephen Kinzer in Boston, Dan Kovalik in Pittsburgh, Karl Schachschneider in Erlangen in Germany, Axel Schönberger in Bremen, Reinhard Merkel in Hamburg. They have all written about the Crimea. And in my sense, I am not a lonely voice crying in the desert. I have uh, plenty of support from very prominent international lawyers and professors of international relations. But and I think that's the point, um, Mr. Desais, and we, we are out of time, but that is exactly the point that if, if American public is not made aware of alternative points of view and the support for those points of view, then we get propagandized into supporting what does not deserve our support. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Can you let me say one more thing? Yes, please. Go ahead. Listen to the statement. It's in YouTube. The statement of Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky at the Senate two days ago, where he, of course, condemned the invasion of Ukraine. But he also said, we have an enormous historical and legal and moral responsibility for the war because we have been provoking it. I mean, NATO is not a defensive organization. NATO has been, since the 1990s, a purely aggressive organization. 
And for that reason, when you look at the Ukraine crisis today, you must look in the mirror and understand that we also bear responsibility. Very good. Thank you so much. So let me just remind folks, we've had the great honor of visiting with the lawyer, the writer and author, the Cuban born attorney expert in the field of human rights and international law. That would be Mr. Alfredo Desaias. Again, he held the office previously from 2012 to 2018 with the United Nations as an independent expert on the promotion of a democratic and equitable international order. You can access some of his more recent articles on Counterpunch and the books we've already mentioned. Additionally, Mr. Desaius can be followed on Twitter at Alfred Desaius. That's A-L-F-R-E-D-D-E-Z-A-Y-A-S. All right, friend, thank you so much for this opportunity and privilege. Until the next time, thank you too. Welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. This is your host, Pedro Gatos. Today is April 29, 2022. We got the great pleasure of getting our third weekly update from Mike Whitney, investigative reporter and geopolitical analyst. And Mike, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. Hi, Pedro. Thanks for having me. Let me ask you to elaborate a little bit. I think the real ignorance that's generated in the U.S. public by what we cover and what we don't cover when it comes to mainstream media creates feelings and images about what's right and what's wrong that sometimes really lack a proper understanding. And one of the main things that really lack a proper understanding, I think people are, they've heard the term Minsk One and Minsk Two treaties, the 2015 Minsk Treaty. This apparently was a a UN approved treaty that the main parties were Russia, the Donbass areas, Ukraine, etc. But actually, there were a number of other countries that were involved with it. Can you give us some background about that agreement? And then it was one of the reasons that Russia ultimately invaded on 224 of this year was the fact that it was being continually dishonored by the Ukraine army. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Bring us up to... Absolutely. Yeah. Here's the issue. And the issue at question is is of huge importance because when we are determining what treaties were broken, we're assigning blame for the war. Now, if there was no history prior to February 24th, when the tanks actually crossed the border, then you would be inclined to blame Russia. But if you knew the circumstances that date back at least eight years to 2014, to the coup d'etat, which was encouraged by the United States, then you come up with a different answer. Now, the thing is, is that after the conflict, after the coup d'etat, elements of the ultra-nationalist wing of the military launched an attack, a series of attacks on the Russian-speaking areas in East Ukraine. And uh, they were rebuffed both times. But after the second battle of Donbass, the UN decided to get involved. And the, you know, the conflicting parties, the people, representatives from the Donbass and from Kiev, the capital of uh, Ukraine, got together and agreed to have a UN implemented peace treaty, which was called the Minsk Agreements. Now, this was in 2014 and 2015. But the states that were on, the countries that were on that 15-member body were a number of different European countries that were uh, very aware of what was going on down there. And they agreed unanimously, unanimously to implement a policy whereby 
there would be a ceasefire. So the ceasefire and the Minsk agreements involved a number of measures, including the basic withdrawal of the troops and heavy equipment, the exchange of prisoners, the gradual disarmament, and most importantly, limited autonomy for the area there. So there were not separatists, okay? Their media constantly refers to them as a separatist element. That's not true at all. They wanted some regional autonomy because they felt threatened by the government, this new coup government that was installed by the United States, who was openly hostile to the Russian-speaking people in Ukraine. So they wanted some protection. That was the agreement they made. And like I said, 15 countries agreed, endorsed these Minsk agreements. Well, the UN and none of the 15 countries implemented any part of the Minsk agreements. And the ultra-nationalists, which are also the neo-Nazis that are part of the government and security apparatus, opposed it and actually told both Poroshenko and the president today that if they implemented Minsk, again, the agreement that everyone uh, agreed to, that they would kill the president of the Ukraine. So he had no incentive to do that. So what happened is in the month of February, many listeners will remember that Joe Biden kept saying, well, Russia is going to invade. Russia is going to invade. And people are scratching their heads going, how does Joe Biden know that? Russia is you know, rejecting that idea. So what secret knowledge does he have? Well, what he knew is that the Ukrainian army that was down in the Donbass area had increased their shelling. Now, they had been shelling them randomly, that area, for the last eight years, killing 14,000 people in that area. Okay, so 14,000 ethnic Russians in East Ukraine were killed by the Ukrainian army. They're killing their own people. It was an ethnic cleansing operation. Well, what happened in February is that likely under the orders of Washington, they intensified the shelling in the 16th, the 17th, and the 18th of February by 30 times over. So, and this was confirmed by a former security member of the United Nations, Jacques Bode, and you can find his, I'll send you a, put a link on your uh, This is 30 your site there. You said increased by 30 times, not three by times. By 30-fold, yes. Yeah. So it was just like random shelling of these cities and towns in the Donbass, Russian-speaking area. And so the Duma, basically the parliament, in Moscow, uh, presented a, a vote to Putin and said, listen, we just unanimously approved this thing that we want to declare the independence of these areas so that these Russian-speaking people aren't constantly persecuted and killed by the Ukrainians. It came to Putin and Putin ratified it quickly on the 21st of February. And then three days later, they invaded ostensibly with the clear purpose of protecting them. Now, legal scholars have looked at this Okay, including Daniel Kovalik, who just wrote an article, I believe, for Counterpunch today. And they verify that there is a legal precedent for this and what the invasion was entirely legal under Article 51, which is what Putin invoked on the day of the day of the invasion, that it's basically responsibility to protect, which is what the United States used quite illegally in Libya, I would say. But in this case, there was a real responsibility to protect those people from being killed by their own army. So if you, you constantly hear Russian invasion, Russian invasion, Russian invasion, and the implication is that Russia is to blame for this. Well, if you just know a little of the facts, a little of the background, and a little bit about the unanimous vote that happened eight years earlier, you can see all they were doing was implementing the plan that the 
that the United Nation has unanimously voted for. Well, the government of Russia, led by Putin, used as their rationale the R2P, the responsibility to protect those folks in the Donbass. But that wasn't the only potential legal cover that they had. They also, of course, were concerned about the NATO deployment of offensive missiles in such close range to Russia and turning Ukraine into kind of a NATO base. And then thirdly, in addition to that, was just having all of these neo-Nazi elements on their doorstep after, of course, losing some 27 million Russians barely a generation ago in World War II to repel Hitler's Nazi onslaught, right? And so there's, yeah. those are three things. So it wasn't just RTP. From your perspective and reading Kovlik's stuff, you know, would, would you say that the legal cover was all three of those things? Absolutely. I would say there's a fourth thing that we're forgetting. Mm-hmm. And the fourth thing is the bioweapons labs. Okay, so well, let's call them biological laboratories. 30 of these laboratories, which were all interconnected and all producing the same lethal pathogens, including coronavirus. And according to the documentation that was uncovered by Russian experts, they were looking for ways to, they're going to use migratory birds to transport these dangerous pathogens into areas like Russia, China, et cetera, because there's over 300 of these bio labs that are supported by the United States secretly around the world, but 60 of them encircle Russia and China. Mike, before you go any further, let me ask you, was this already known to Russia by their intelligence or was this largely discovered post-invasion? I can't answer that. Mm -hmm. I I really don't know. But here's the irony about the whole thing. This Mm -hmm. story was completely blocked out of the media. And you're not going to believe it because it's so consequential that you're going to say that couldn't possibly have happened. Mm -hmm. But the United Nations Security Council convened a special meeting. It was on April 5th. So they could discuss these issues. And so the the Russian MOD was going to present his case. And the United States refused to appear. Not only did the United States refuse to appear about the 336 labs, the 30 of them that are in Ukraine, many of them producing these horrible lethal pathogens, And uh, some of them apparently targeting certain ethnicities. They believe that they were trying to develop pathogens that would target Slavic people. Mm -hmm. So if they're targeting Slavic people, I would imagine they're working on a technology to uh, target Chinese people as well. But Mm -hmm. the thing is, not only did the United States refuse to appear, the media, there is no reporting Uh, that this media ever happened in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, CNN, any of them, none of them covered it. Well, let me ask you this or share this with you too. But number one, I do think that this attack in the Donbass and this kind of ethnic cleansing that you referred to, I think is clearly a very potentially valid theory in that by wiping out more Eastern Russian speaking ethnic folks, the ability to win at the ballot place would increase significantly for any future U.S. government allied Ukraine government nominee. On top of that, though, I wanted to ask you one quick question, but I wanted to preface it with this wealth inequality issue. This is Oxfam just this year in January. 
the world's 10 richest men had doubled their monies and wealth since the pandemic began from March of 2020 to November 2021. Meanwhile, the incomes of 90% of humanity are worse off because of COVID-19. They go on to talk about this very small elite 2,755 billionaires have seen their fortunes grow more during COVID than in the whole last 14 years combined. That speaks for itself. But this inequality is so deadly that Oxfam documents that some 23,000 people die each day or one person every four seconds because of the, the abject poverty that's generated from this wealth inequality. Gross wealth inequality kills And I guess since we're limited on time, I just wanted to ask you, you have a situation, we hear this rhetoric from our government leaders on rules-based order and how certain countries violate these rules and the United States and the West are diligently trying to promote these rules. But we, you know, we go around overthrowing these governments and over this past year or more, bringing light into darkness has documented how these governments that we promote versus those that they replace provide substantially lesser quality of life benefits for the majority populations. And that is because our foreign policy is based on promoting this wealth inequality rather than reducing it. You know, just this week, after pouring in several billion dollars into the Ukraine military, leading up to the Russian invasion and before the Russian invasion, Biden is now suggesting another $33 billion for the Ukraine military that, and I guess It seems to distract us from the real problem of this wealth inequality when we're so focused on what the media points us to be focused on, namely, you know, Russia's bad, China's bad, U.S. is good. Meanwhile, this incredible wealth disparity in our own country has decimated the middle class while accelerating the wealth inequality. What do you think of this $33 billion uh, announcement? That was just earlier this week. Well, I think, you know, first of all, I mean, let's put it into some proportion. That $33 billion is almost twice, as I recall, twice the size of the EPA budget. I think it's about half the probably educational budget for, for a year. It's a huge amount of money. And the United States keeps kiting checks, basically printing money on an account that's overdrawn by $30 trillion. I have to believe that's that's part of the reason we're going to war now to maintain that system. But yes, the disparity in wealth is one of the huge casualties of this whole affair. But think of on the other side of that, think of the instability it's create, creating. I mean, there are a lot of people with this inflationary problem of you know 10% per year can't even meet their basic payments for gas to get into the cities where they work, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're creating more and more instability. And I don't know whether you're aware of it or not, but the the euro has plummeted and we're seeing the ruble has rebound and the ruble is at a two year high. Remember when Biden was bragging, saying the ruble is now rubble. Well, that was very short lived because these people are so short sighted that they don't understand that the choices that they're making are going to have catastrophic implications for Europe in the very near future. Mike, explain real quick in the last minute or two that we have too in your comments about how Russia is now demanding that they get paid in rubles because of they're not allowed to spend any euros. What's what's the backstory there? That's kind of an interesting story as well, because Ursula van der Leyen was saying that essentially Russia is blackmailing us into breaking the terms of their contract to pay for Russian oil and Russian natural gas in euros. 
And Russia is saying quite simply that you have banned us through your sanctions for spending euros. So why would I possibly accept a currency in whose market I'm unable to spend the money? So the euros are and dollars are worthless to uh, Russia now. So that's why they're demanding rubles. But as you know, the petrodollar is the source to great extent of the United States success as far as maintaining its hegemony around the world. But already this conflict has created a bifurcated world because we're back into block mentality. We have two worlds basically divided into two distinct spheres. And uh, Russia and China, India are angling towards that one sphere that is going to put increasing pressure on the dollar. If you have 60% of all the currency that is in reserve around the world is the dollar. And now a good portion of the global population is no longer going to use that currency. Those dollars are going to come back to the United States and cause incredible inflation. It's mm -hmm. nothing to do with just the price of, of how many dollars are being printed right now by the Federal Reserve. It has to do with those trillions of dollars that are washing back on American shores. That's the problem. Well, listen, we, we are out of time, but uh, what an outstanding uh, summary of two or three or four contradictions that are not covered at all by the Western press, and therefore the American public is just being taken for a ride, so to speak. Thank you for your time. If people want to continue to follow Mike's work, Mike, you publish frequently on UNS Review, right? Yes, and Global Research. All right. Mike, thank you so much for this update this week, and we'll look at our future updates. Thank well, you, Pedro. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. Breaks all his own laws. 